Oh yeah, if my eyes go wild and white, yeah, I've got kind of allergies going on, so uh, I'm not going to try. Oh. What are you going to see? You'll see, you'll see some of my actions. Morning, um, everyone. Welcome to Fallout Podcast, episode 76. Uh, peace is a kite of materials you'll never catch. It's a futile ultimate fall, showdown, etc., etc. Almost at the end of round one, finally, we've got like two episodes left before we've talked about all of them, and then we'll, we'll probably stop. There'll be no round two. Never, that's the, we'll never stop talking the, about them. That's the, that's the trick. Um, thank you to Annotated Fall Few and the track record and all of those who fall. Joined by Monsieur Chippington Behard. Put down your left wing to raids and the musical trades. How you doing, Phil? Um, I'm I'm pretty good. My uh, my talons are famished and I'm ready to go. It's been a bit of a treat this week. Really enjoyed it. Some nice stuff, uh, right? It's, it's been really good, yeah. Um, and uh, joined by Lord Sage Temple and, and his squawking child. Uh, toilet queue was endless, couldn't get a beer. How are you doing, Ezra? How's, how's parenthood treating you? Mm, well, the Kraken is sleeping and uh, mm, in eternal eons, Aye. maybe even death shall die. Old stuff at this point, isn't it? T. Pemberton S. Walker must have stumped tripod in the jeans. How are you, Alistair? It's late night there, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think we were doing the late o'clock uh, podcast for, for us Wiganers. So the, the midnight special, Lead Belly, brilliant. Um, yeah, I've, I've been on the piss in Wiggins tonight. Well, uh, less, less said of that, the better, isn't it? Becking John Bull, John Bull Chop House. Uh, Chris Barr of Wigan, fast asleep. He will be, he will be. But, you know, he's it, been offered... You know, alternative uh, accommodation for podcasting. Uh, a tiny Tintois joining us, and also I have three beards, a wobbly uh, Plato of the human example and copy a dog master, pet mourner. Uh, Patreon chippings from Leon Jumble Sale and Michael E. And joined by a guest, uh, Patrick um, of Chicago Town and of Kennings Editions. How are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing well. And I must say to you all, I admire your commitment to this obscene project thank you very much um we encountered each other i guess on on twitter and i i believe that um your representative of a of a the kennings editions who <clears throat> i'm going to read you a bit a bit of the website that stuck out to me and that um, seemed to connect strongest to uh, what what we dig about uh, the fall and, and Smith's kind of approach to stuff. So Kenning's editions are, and uh, is a, uh, publishes archival writing and new writing, a lot of poetry um, that tries to reflect um, diversity and innovation, exploring aesthetics, quality, and political commitment through uh, poetry, poetics, art, drama, and hybrid genre. Um, Literature and critical writing that is experimental, formally daring, and close to the lived experience. Radical modernist impulses, progressive social discourse. And then um, there's a quote from William Carlos Williams. The poet said, It's difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Uh, all of that <clears throat> rung resonated strongly in the, in the eyes of Smith, I believe. So um, what's your take on that and uh, um, what's Kenyon's kind of mission and uh, what's your fall love if you don't mind answering all those questions in a, a long form rant. Not at all. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes I think that 
Mark e. Smith would be deeply suspicious of me and how I've done what I've done, actually, uh, especially because uh, it, part of my life I spend as an academic. Uh, <clears throat> but And I had to struggle to get to that point. Um, but uh, Kenning Editions is this thing that was uh, inspired actually first from seeing a copy of Floating Bear, which is, uh, this mimeograph scene that um, Leroy Jones and uh, Diane DePrima edited in the 60s. This was in a, a, a museum exhibition. Anyways, I that and like the punk and post-punk zine scene and indie rock thing I was involved in uh, growing up in uh, Minneapolis in the 1980s. Um, so that sort of inspired me. And then when I started, um, Marky Smith, here's my cat, by the way, Marky Smith um, taught me, taught me that words were sort of plastic and you could, you could fuck around with them in sometimes subtle and very simple ways and stay close to the simple and the mundane and bizarre shit would just open up. And of course I love the music too. I, I would have first heard the fall in uh Go away now. Uh, I would have first heard the fall in 1985, maybe. This EP came out with um, A and B sides from singles that were recorded, I think, at the sessions for This Nation's Saving Grace. So the first fall song I heard was either Roland Danny or um, Spot Victorian Child. But I remember the EP had Roland Danny, Couldn't Get Ahead, Barmy, Vixen, Petty Thief Lout. And in that order... It was a U.S. only thing, I think. And I, I'll never forget listening to that EP. Every song got better. And and it just, it was just transcendent. I've been a Fall fan ever since. I, I got to see him live once. And when Marky Smith walked on the stage, I <clears throat> got the chills. Like, yeah. So there's a photograph of Marky Smith uh, framed on my office door. I look at it every morning when I come in and start working on editing and publishing and um, writing every day. So he sort of taught me everything, but I've, I've never wanted to inspect that, you know, cause I don't, I don't treat him like a, I've been trained to treat a literary figure. I don't chase down illusions. I don't, I don't do that stuff that all the annotated fall people do. I don't want to read his lyrics. I want to hear it. You know, I think he was one of the greatest poets in the English language of the 20th century. And, and it and it had to be in the context of rock and roll to to kind of be what it was. So in that sense, Marky e. Smith was an early influence, but is really kind of different from who I've become and what I do now. But without him, I don't know what I'd be doing. Yeah, no, that I mean it makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> did you ever come across these two um, spoken word um, albums, the Horse Nearly Man and Panda Panzer? What was your take on those? That, the latter, uh, Pander Panza, whatever it's called. Yeah, so I got that. I, I do like that a lot. I remember um, your episode where you were discussing that. I was I was nodding my head a lot. I sort of agreed with everything that everyone said, even when they, even you all disagreed. Um, and I like I like that record a lot. Um, I had it on CD, and I don't know if it was cheaply made or if I destroyed it, but it doesn't work anymore, and I can't find it again now. So it, it's sort of gone. Sure, I can listen to it on YouTube, but yeah, yeah. Um, we'll That's be talking perfect, about right? life tonight, right? So, if we're talking about Dog is Life, I was, um, 
reread. I was reading that for the first time. I'd never read it, you know, yeah. in preparation. And it's just fucking amazing. I took all these, I took like a page and a half of notes. I've got 10 minutes of spiel on Dog is Life, which I won't bore you with. But, you know, it's genius. I always felt like only in the context of rock and roll. Um, yeah. Well, sense, but but you're right. It's beyond that. There's a lot there. Well, please do with your ten minutes because that's exactly the kind of forum that this place is. So when we get to it, I mean, I I, I started copying and pasting a few lines from that, and I and I uh, ended up copying the whole text. So I probably read most of it anyway because it it is an insane kind of diatribe against dog dogs and their cultural kind of uh, place. And um, I um. We had a big back and forth about whether dog is life and Jerusalem should be uh, should be one or two, but we'll get to that later. And and I'm going to point out whenever a coincidence raises its head, I'm going to point it out. So Leroy Jones, that's the second in a second um, reference in two weeks because um, we had um, we had um, Mayo Thompson at the Red Crayola came on and he um, was operating in similar circles at some point in the early seventies. So we we always say Smith may be pulling some strings in the vibrations beyond. Uh, who knows? Shall we? Uh, shall we crack on with uh, what we've got on tonight, which is Fiery Jack versus Couldn't Get Ahead, Living Too Late versus uh, Dog Is Life, and Blood Out of Stone against Sink Harpy. So Philip, if you don't mind, give us a blast of Fiery Jack. Sweet, sweet, good times, Philip, as is customary. What is your take on F Jack? Can't hear him. There we go. So yeah, I love this tune. It's I I, I love it every time I hear it, and I love it slightly more every time I hear it. Um, it's really simple. The beauty is in the is in the the, the sum of its parts. Really, um, it reminds me a bit when we were talking about Hobgoblins the other day about uh, this mixture of mundane urban life and the supernatural. Because um, he kind of does something similar with this. One minute he's talking about fiery jack in a circle, and the next thing he's talking about those uh, uh, hard livers with hard livers, uh, as the interview goes. Um, so, I, But, I mean, from a musical point of view, it's it's not that complicated, but it's, it's insanely catchy. Everything from the little gallop to the ice cream van, uh, licks and riffs that go through it. Um, there is nothing not to like. It's just uh, it's just very very catchy, um, and it's a great tune. Yeah, it is. And we, we talked to to about a few weeks ago with with Mayo Thompson, and uh, cause he he produced it right, and he was talking about the innovative and Smith who's singing against that that rockabilly kind of riff, a fairly standard, well played rockabilly riff that Smith then kind of elevates with that with that vocal um patrick what's this one do for you uh yeah i think uh i mean i love it i'm i was i'm often kind of suspicious of uh mez's vocal mannerisms in the very early 
recordings and kind of Johnny Rotten sort of thing. But um, in a song like Fire Jack or Mazzaroe's Daughter, he's sort of coming into his own. I don't know what the fuck that thing is he does before he spits out the final refrain, right, of uh, what is it, Eat This Grenade? Yeah. You know, it's it's terrifying. It's, it's the David Yao of Jesus Lizard is similar but different. You know, Fire Jack maybe deserves comparison to a song like Then Come Comes Dudley because it's, they're both very repetitious. They're both sort of character sketches that descend into something gory uh, as they move along. And so that's really interesting to me. I like the drummer here is tapping on a tom-tom every once in a while, making the whole rhythm stammer in an interesting way. And uh, the guitars are kind of a shocking variety of textures they're able to produce, given how, how minimal this thing is. Production's brilliant. There's a lot of space, you know? Um, I like Johnny Cash as much as the next guy, but the, there's a lot of residual heroism in his anti-heroes. I think I prefer this Jack character and... You know, Fiery Jack is better than Ring of Fire, I think, in my world. Old claim, but uh, you won't hear me disagreeing. Ezra, you, uh, your eyes lit up at the mention of the Jesus Lizard, and I'm sure Alistair's did as well. But So uh, you're up next. What's uh, what's your take? Yeah, absolutely. Um, big, big fan of the Jesus Lizard. But back to Jack. Um, first of all, I've got this anecdote. You might remember Visible Stew, who was a guest. Yes. He was and probably still isn't an enormous fall freak but he did have some time for for the band for the group so after his last appearance on the show of course he stayed at mine for a while and i endeavored to play him some of some of the best tracks and of course fiery jack would be one of those and i was playing it to him and he suddenly leapt up and clicked his fingers and said big ad at the local pub that I used to frequent, this track was on the jukebox, and we all hated it. But we knew the landlord hated country and Western music with a passion. So we would always play this track to irritate the landlord. <laughs> so needless to say, I was a little nonplussed with that anecdote. I was like, <laughs> I suppose this track has just been a victim of its own success in you know, it's kind of genre <laughs> genre references in this case. But anyway, I digress. Uh, for me, this is a perfect track. Um, fucking great. I feel like one of the things I really like about The Fall is, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before, is there's this celebration and condemnation of the grottiness of life. And they often both occur in the same song. And this is a perfect kind of, early example of this you know i sat and drank for three decades i'm 45 i live on pies i eat hot dogs just beautiful great stuff pieces a kite of materials you'll never catch there's no 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 peace on earth my friend you just need to get into it and fucking keep on at it until you die um and yeah, interested by the eat this grenade to defend free trade kind of refrain. I mean, like, what's he what's he getting at the at that there? Like the libs are too into free trade, which props up the military industrial arms complex. I don't know. That was something I thought he might be 
kind of getting at with that, but who knows? Anyway, yeah, fucking genius, great early track. Who knows indeed, but speaking, speaking of those that live 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 hard, live fast, <laughs> Alistair, he's just, his screen's just gone black. Is he still there? Alistair, what do you make of Fiery Jack? Am I, am I still here? Yeah, go on. Uh, yeah, the screen's gone black. I don't know what the hell I've done. Uh, Fiery Jack, lovely tune. Um, yeah, it's more like kind of like your country and northern stuff. Like, uh, I, I did think of Phil, um, Living Pies and 45, but now he's 46, so that's, that's no longer applicable. Um, but yeah, the lovely tight, skippy kind of beat that's going on with it. And the lovely guitar sounds great. Um there's like there's loads of stuff that's going on here. I wasn't sure if it was a two drummer thing or not, but um didn't check it out. Um but the, the, you got that great rhythm that, that's going on there. The, the, loads of kind of like delay chorus, um fucking fantastic. Um but yeah, the uh eat this grenade thing it, at the end of it, it really does kind of like it's it's the icing on the cake and uh, they, they just like chuck it out there. Um and uh, you know, chuck the grenade into the room, um. But yeah, it's it's damn fine stuff. Burns really doing a good job. I've got. Uh, I'll have to do try and work it out. But I think there there is a there's a chance. But I know. I think it's just. I think it's probably just Paul Hanley on on drums there. I don't think. Um. I don't know if Burns yeah. is even around. Right. Okay. That's I'm not, I'm not your fellow who used to um. You know, they had an actual kind of country style drummer for a while, didn't they? Well, they had they had the lad Mike Lee. The Mike Lee. Mike Lee was not Mike Lee. Yeah. And he was more <laughs> he was he is a cabaret but cabaret player, but he had some yeah, some love for the, the country style and, and Burns obviously could do it. Around that time, I think it's it's kinda of hard to track down exactly who's playing on, on what, but I've got a feeling it uh, Burns hadn't come back at that point, no one. So um what does Tiny Tim on the other side think of Fiery Jack? He loves this stuff, doesn't he? Well, let's have a find out. And he says, I love this track. Everything about it, the wiry lean sound, the unerring riff and drums just churning away, the perfect poetry and delivery of the lyrics. I couldn't think of a thing I'd like to change about it. If I were to be asked about which was the most perfectly proportioned and well-judged fall song, it would probably be this. I mean, he's calling it. Everyone's calling it. Isn't Fiery Jack. Fiery Jack is like a deep heat rub as well, and I'm not sure if he's referring to that. And the pe- pranksters would apparently rub it on toilet seats so that your ass would all get burned up when you. Uh, he gets. He does get tired with all that did. tapping through. He does. Um, Brendan, Phil, I, I do remember. Uh, it was a common sort of like uh, call uh, on Springfield Park. Uh, when uh, Wigan Athletic used to play there, and somebody went down and got injured, what we him down with a bit of fiery jack. It's in the blood, isn't it? So he talks about, and he obviously talks about fiery jack types. This is most of meditated fall. Uh, Manchester, the hard livers, faces like unmade beds. Um, either though they're clearly doing themselves damage, there's a zest for life there, and a rarity that's not as oblivious as you might think. Drinkers have a good sense for the absurd. So I think this fiery Jack character would have been nice for him to explore it a bit more, but that's Smith for you, isn't it? And um that that um Yummy Fur did that excellent cover of it um as well. I was a big fan of that's everyone in it, I think. 
So we move on to what it's up against, which is couldn't get ahead of uh, this nation's saving grace. Well, well, well. Uh, this nation's saving grace done very poorly so far in this competition. It isn't looking good today. Um, but but tell us more of the sorcery scandal of 1398, Ezra. Very well then. Yeah, this is um this is a good track. It's also got the country and northern kind of DNA going on in it. Yeah, I like the way that the uh the chorus kind of increases in intensity each time around. What was the name of the producer at this time? It wasn't Lecky, was it? What was his name? Yeah, Lecky. This nation was Lecky, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I love the way that he layers stuff up here. And obviously he's got a hand in some of the other tracks that are coming up tonight. And I think, yeah, his production is one thing that really elevates an already damn good track. Um I really like the uh, kind of religious, it feels like there's some kind of religious motif anyway, especially in relationship to uh, public transport. He says, like, uh, the bus flashes past, my hands are cupped, <laughs> which I felt was <laughs> really quite hilarious. Um, uh, yeah, it, it seems fairly straightforward about a guy who's constantly... Um, hobbled by a hangover or a come down or a hungover come down uh on an asiatic plane with wings not of the brain now my problems are solved it's a remedy of old i pretend i'm blind you see put on some amani clothes and act like et <laughs> which is i guess a kind of shriveled jesus maybe um but yeah very very nice fun track it is a kind of shriveled Jesus is as close as you're going to get, isn't it, really? Patrick, what's this one do for you? You mentioned that this was, uh, was this on that first EP uh, that you that you encountered all those days ago? Yeah, this might have been the second fall song I ever heard. Um, after those first five, after that first EP, I, I heard Slates. And so that helped reorient me, especially in terms of production values. I was listening to this song again this week. I was thinking about um, how Marky Smith is the CEO, the CFO, and then also works on the factory floor, you know, so that this there's an allegory here about what it means to be the kind of band that The Fall is. Uh, Critics Darlings does not mean you live a life of leisure and luxury, not that he asked for or necessarily would want such a life. I also like, um, this is true of uh, Spot Victorian Child, and there are some other examples, but I like it when he has to race to fit the line into the bar of music. Um, it's, it's, his phrasing is such, I usually think of it as blithe and 
sort of uh, muffled, uh, but you know, with lines like when the but when the next bus is, I said five or ten minutes, which is a brilliant rhyme, and and I feared beer was making sludge in my head, uh, fitting that in just before they uh, hurl back into the chorus. Um, I just really enjoy it when he has to hurry to fit every syllable in. I also am very fond of Briggs as a backup singer, and her vocals work really well off the harmonica, which which is sort of funny and serious at the same time throughout the song. Um, I'm also a fan of John Leckie's production, even though the drum sounds don't age very well. I hear um, a crash cymbal overdubs with an echo applied, um, and I was a drummer in a punk band in the mid 80s or a post-punk band or whatever and uh remember trying to play fall songs which band were you were you, were you in which band? oh that no they shall go unnamed <laughs> that, that's between me and, and my god um anyhow so i was playing in bands but i was playing as a drummer and uh i would try to play fall songs and carl burns is crazy and that that particular that rhythm section of that time um Steve, Steve Hanley and Carl Burns. And then also, you know, Simon Walsencroft, I also really admire his work. Anyways, Bricks's vocal and and the the weird symbols, uh crash symbols sort of echoing. Um the, I found I couldn't play them. So they must have been some kind of overdub. Um maybe maybe I'm just not as good as Carl Burns. I'm sure I never was. The cowbell here. You know, they're trying to do the country and northern, as you put it, this rockabilly thing, uh, as with Fire a Jack. With Fire a Jack, all they really need is a little slapback echo. Here, it's like they're just layering things to, like, get that rhythm going. So the cowbell, for example, comes in. It has to sort of reestablish that that country, uh, maybe Skiffle-esque sort of thing. So it's a matter of taste. You know, this song wouldn't exist without fiery jack and container drivers and it's on a spectrum with all these songs but you know i'm sort of biased because it was the beginning of the fall for me yeah um i think that notion of him struggling to fit lines in even though he could definitely force the band to accommodate him is really interesting because he is totally and the spot victorian child which these rotters fought it out it's one of my favorites for that same reason it's such a uh, incongruous to the false sound that kind of intricate like <laughs> riff but then smith is just shoehorning his lyrics into it and it, it works perfectly for me and similar uh, he didn't like lecky's style per se and lecky came out of that almost psychedelic kind of scene yet he allowed him to run with it and and as much as we haven't really shown a lot of love for this nation saving grace it, it does hold together as an album i really do love the production on there and 1980s minneapolis punk scene well that's in thailand uh, babes in thailand I, I work security at a babes in thailand gig in the 7th street entry so 300 seat capacity there are no seats but you know 300 capacity tiny little room I work security. I work the front of the stage. There's no barrier. So it was my job to sit three inches from cat cat's feet wow. and keep the freaks away. And, it, you know, Lori Barbera was everybody's. I got a lot of stories from Minneapolis in the 80s. We can. Laurie. No, no, I, I have met Beds in Thailand. And uh, yeah, Laurie. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, great drummer. <laughs> and she's a lovely person who she has friends around is, the world because she's, she's just a great person. Mm. I'm just listening to that. Um, there's a podcast called You Don't Know Mojack, which is going through SST releases. And obviously, who's going to do put out a lot of stuff on there as well. That's that's a really good podcast. Trying to get those lads on because I would wait until they finally mention the fall and it was like episode 60 or something. They just mentioned it. So I'm like, okay, maybe try and get those on. But that's quite a scene. But that's that's probably for another episode if we get into it. But that would be that'd be awesome to talk about that scene more. Um but shout let's move on. Let's stay focused. Philip, what do you make of whatever song it is we're currently talking about? <laughs> Um, well, from go ahead, I, I found myself getting really entranced with the music here. It was it was something that it's great when it starts. It's got a great shouty chorus. The harmonica's like a saxophone. It's like one of your favorite TV shows is coming on. It's it's like it's got that really great sort of uh, uh, right from that sort of frantic drum roll at the start that uh, that introduces you into the song. Um, but it's it, when you actually get into the song. I mean, the bit the riff is so simple melodically as in just being two notes or two chords that's being played but rhythmically it's really counterintuitive it's it, it, it's it's always kind of fighting against what you where you think the song should be going and it's it's all the better for it it, it sounds wild because of it and it's uh it's a great example. I was trying to think of that quote, but you'll have to remind what me what it is, Brennan. But where uh, he talked about the uh, the fall being intelligent lyrics over this kind of you know thumping rhythmic music, um, and I think this is a, a great example of that. I think they pull off loads of really good stuff with it, um, and even the production is is quite subversive in the way that it's counterintuitive. The bass is right up in the in the mix, and the guitar becomes like a sort of um like a textual thing i know it's it's not the first record to do it and it certainly wasn't the last record to do it on but the more that i picked the record apart the more that i picked every voice apart in it the more that i found that it was doing exactly the opposite of what it should be doing really um so yeah i i really uh i really got a lot out of this today splendid splendid alistair what do you uh reckon to this one it's a it's a great rockabilly tuna um it, it brings the noise in there. Uh, they, they do just like do the discord, um, but always with like the like the strict beat, which keeps the kind of like rockabilly thing. The the cabbage patch kids and ET stuff, um, dead amusing. Um, it gets into the bricks kind of like experience. I think uh, like reading the bricks book and so like uh, what MES was experience like exposed to with um, going to America and, uh, you know, all the Disneyland shit at the time uh, and what was, you know, it, it was fucking weird. They had Cabbage Patch Kids was a big thing. You know, people were fighting in, in shops to own a Cabbage Patch Kid. It, what the fucking hell, you know? Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's a great analysis of sort of like the, the absurdity of commerciality and uh, a bunch of other shit, uh, but with a great rockabilly groove at the same time. So uh, I'm definitely not going to slag this one off. No, indeed, indeed. Mm. So, Leon, 
Jumble Searle had to say, he said, Fiery Jack couldn't get ahead when purred like this highlighted some of the similarities, both examples of jaunty CNN fall track and its development. What of that development, Tim, on the other side? So, yeah, he says about this one, a good and fun number with some good comedy lyrics. And I like the instrumental textures and the build-up, what might be a harmonica, but the production really lets it down. What should be blistering sounds dull and rounded. Great bricks riff, though, and a good track overall. Oh, yeah, I meant to say that. This, Yeah, I totally love the bricks back in vocals. <coughs> it's name, Patrick. It works so well. In this. Yeah, she's a delight. And um, as we've said many, many times, brought uh, the fall something that they probably would the band probably wouldn't have um, lasted much longer without her I don't think or they wouldn't have, certainly wouldn't have been what they were but let's take a vote um so Michael E on, on the patreon is, is uh, he's going for couldn't get ahead which way are you going pip I think I'm gonna have to go fiery Jack yeah I think so me too it's uh it's just it's a it's a barnstormer isn't it Patrick which way are you going couldn't get ahead because I know I can't win. <laughs> you, you never know at this uh, this at this rate when Alistair gets his hands on this. Alistair, which way are you going? All bets are off. Fiery Jack. Um, couldn't get ahead. I fucking love. Uh, but the, the next round is going to be awful. We're, 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 the stuff that we've got, yeah, we really like it. And we're going to have to like just, it's like deciding which child that you're going to like feed. You know, in it, it, it which part, part of the evening when uh, Al remembers the rules of the game. I know he's, he's, he's <laughs> when the terror when the terror Have you strikes. You've been watching the Eurovision yeah. tonight, Al. Oh no, no I've, I've not. I've done not. I've been at the bloody John Bolt, the John Bolt shop house wigging, the People's Republic of wigging. Um, <laughs> is it? Is it on today? Is it, Eurovision's on tonight? Right. I thought no, it was yesterday. Was... Didn't Charles win? Exactly. So, <laughs> weird, weirdly enough, uh, my my uh, my friends, good friends with the Australian entry. I don't know if they uh, how well they did, but still, I, I feel that this is an evening of diversions. Let's stick, let's stick to it, and let's take that vote. Ezra, which way are you going? Belgium. Well, as much as as much as I love the God Bus and shriveled prune Jesus, I'm going with Jack. Okay, so, um, and Tim? Tim's gone for Jack, hasn't he? He's cheated. He's put Fiery Jack 76 points, couldn't get ahead two. Okay, well, uh, Patrick, you were correct. It could not be won, but still it can all be salvaged in the second or third or fourth round. Who knows how this is going to pan out. But let's move on. Let's plow ahead with Living Too Late slash Long off uh, Bend Sinister. We're doing it. Struggling, isn't he? Crow's feet are in grey on my face And I'm living too late Here we are, lad. What's going on here? Trying to wash the black off of my face But it's in grey And I'm living too late Must have a stone tripod 
the noise break the refuge of the scoundrel what does tim think of uh living too late slash long he's having a nightmare isn't he rigby he's fucking <laughs> every, everything's everything's falling apart yeah it's after midnight it's can, we, to, can yeah. we not get can we not it's get late, chris barrow yeah. up late, brendan do you know like i'm an old man now Weird song, Industrial Fall, the way the groaning sound in the background weaves around the metronomic beat with the insistent pulsing bass feels like an abstract factory in perpetual motion, and it's a strange match to the sublime melancholy of the lyrics. The break is another thing altogether, more ridiculous than sublime, thanks to Mark's yodel. I do love the swirling and ascending thing that happens at those points, but it feels really incongruous. I love it, but with conditions... Aye, I'm with him. I'm with him. It's a kind of plodding beat, a bit lighter than your average fall fur, especially from Ben Sinister, which is quite dark and moody. And you think this song, as we well know, Phil, is, uh, is the is the end of Luciani. He appears at the end of the play and it's supposed to to show um, that, uh, that terrible ending for him. But it's a little bit light for, for me. I want it to be heavier. A moodier, I think that would have really suited it, and uh, but it does set a mood for Smith and a Smith. I think Smith is what makes it. Um, although I do like that kind of like uh, sleepy, uh, noisy violin stuff that's happening in the background, and um, the the kind of noises that come in. I don't really like that noise break, but I like the noises that are layered throughout the track. Um, but yeah. Smith's uh, Smith's what saves it for me. Crow's greet, crow's feet engraved on my face, trying to wash the black off my face, but it's ingrained, sleepless, in control, spleen, a great ace, swirlbilly that must have stump tripod in the jeans. I'm immune to things in my dreams. Um, yeah, really nice kind of stuff. Again, I'm not really sure how it relates to the death of a pope, but uh, that's uh, for us to work out, isn't it? Patrick, what's uh, your take on this song? Yeah, I think the band are creating really interesting uh, harmonics, even before that through line of strange, like, I don't know if that's a violin or what's going on, the scraping, screeching, stringy sort of thing, which is suitably agonizing. Uh, the word spleen comes up in the lyrics, but I think it's really about ennui. You know, before Camus, who gave the band their name, um, there was Baudelaire, and Baudelaire was all about this blurry line between spleen, which is closer to anger, and ennui, which is closer to melancholy or boredom. And I think uh, I think some of that blandness you're referring to is is kind of important thematically for the song because it's sort of about neither being frightened nor being frightening. Uh, I think I read somewhere that uh, Mez said this was an attempt to figure out if middle-aged middle-class men ever get angry <laughs> but i think he answers no you know it's it's the difference between spleen and ennui um <clears throat> my favorite lyric is actually from uh from the living too long version of of this song yeah where he says they said my soul is one evil and black but i know they're wrong this one been living too long uh brilliant beautiful yeah, and I think thinking about those themes again, um, 
I mean, Phil were trying to put together Luciani, the, the play, to kind of do something with it at some point. And those themes uh, at the end, when when John Paul One is kind of considering his place in the world, those themes of envy and um, and kind of anger or spleen and the, the, the contrast between the two and, and deciding which side to come down on, um, that that's very that, that makes a lot of sense and that might be why he decided to use it at that point in the play um but yeah originally about the idea once again of the middle classes and whether or not um it's about uh, well if you look back at fiery jack and how he's kind of bigging up the working class man and then two songs later in our list he's kind of once again saying that everything um is the fault of the middle classes <laughs> which is uh it's smith's uh consistent if, if nothing else how about um alistair what do you make of living too late slash long like 150 episodes are moving 150 episodes in and we we, we haven't got how this works <laughs> alistair you're on mute Fucking hell, I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but yeah, no, Living Too Late, fucking beautiful song. I don't know any of you lot can criticise it in any way whatsoever. Um, is it a thoroughly beautiful melancholy thing, which uh, Patrick picked up on the word melancholy, which was in my notes. Um, and it really captures like a, a, like a really earthy, beautiful thing. Uh, you're just talking about life, talking about your experience, and um, you know, clearly it's not an easy life; it's a hard life. Um, but yeah, you know, in the music, the 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 violin and the piano, lifting the lid off a piano and exploring the insides. That is a, that that is a beautiful thing, and that goes on in this, and not enough people do that. Um, but yeah, love the fucking song. Jimmy Cage would do that kind of stuff, wouldn't he? Get his hands inside those pianos. And I, and, and Craig, I'm going to give Craig the benefit and all this Ben Sinister stuff because the weird stuff that goes on in the background, I think, I think it's him exploring it. But given that he'd never given an interview other than that, <laughs> that thing taped on um, an old brother in the from the corner of a pub. Craig, uh, we, we want to grill you about your noises on Ben Sinister. No chance. No fucking chance. So at least what Leon says, living too late stuns with its 11am nausea despair. Every sound in the house magnified a rush to the bogs during hallucinogenic breakdown. I think he said that. I got it from somewhere. Living too late was always an unusual single choice and made me think how Mez decided to decide on singles. It seems on numerous occasions they were planned as separate studio visits between albums as opposed to simply selecting the most commercial track from the latest batch. That's why they often seem like the current state of the falls reports rather than pop songs. Although this approach must have focused the group, they're all able, also able to pull off some of their catchiest pop bangers using this approach. He did say... Um, that he'd often try to write a Eurovision tune, meaning a, a pop banger, and then take him into the studio on, on that model of uh, album, single, album, single, especially in the early years. And, and I think it really did work. Here again, Blood Out of Stone, I think, is a similar idea. Maybe we'll get to that later. But who, who have I not asked about this yet? Phil Rigby? I told you the fall thing. It's got this absurdist sort of dollop that keeps sort of appearing in the, in the middle of the music. And 
I think for me, it's like my train of thought was that it's like a memento mori. It's it's like this sort of reminder of uh, of mortality, I guess. And it, that got me thinking about dirges. I said, I was thinking to myself, do you get many dirges in the charts these days? Do you? It's like, yeah. it's not a very popular uh, uh, genre these days for some reason. But it's like it, it's it's one of those. It's, it got me thinking about how the spectrum of like emotional experience, the reflection of that within popular culture, seems to have been like reduced uh since the 60s where with it might be the next song where there's there's that sort of ennio morricone chord change that goes in it um we don't get anything that rich anymore in popular music to, to my ear anyway not melodically anyway possibly rhythmically i like this song in the same way that alistair does and i, I like the breakdown in it because it is ridiculous and life is ridiculous at some level so i get it on that sort of conceptual sense but at the same time it's it's a bit like parliament it's the pace is just a little bit too slow for me to get into it <laughs> oh phil but that kind of sucks. Funkadelic in Parliament, they're no they're no party like a P funk party because a P funk party just never quite get going. Oh well, oh well. Here's what Samantha Fox had to say about the Smiths' single "Panic." So the the thing about about this that they often quote that um, in Smash Hits, Samantha Fox reviewed this single. But you can go and read what she said about. Uh, the- bit too late. I'm going to read what she said about Panic by the Smiths. I'm sorry to say, but I find them very depressing. The lead singer's voice sounds like he's in pain. Is that Morrissey? It says in the song, Hang the DJs, but where would you be without them? If you don't like DJs, you still like them because they play your records, and that's what sells records. I don't think you'd like to hang Janice Long or John Peel, would you? I wouldn't play it, though. He can't sing, and it gives me a headache. In all his interviews, he's Mr. Nasty, too, and goes moan, moan, moan. How how very prescient of Samantha Fox back in 1986. Brilliant. (laughs) Has Tim told us what he thinks of this? Probably. Let's have a look. Uh, yes, he did. So he kicked us off, actually. Brilliant. Come on, back back in us, the box. <laughs> tell us what you think of this song, Even Too Late Slash Long. Yeah, I think it's one of their very best. I first heard this track, I think it was on a compilation. It was one that just, it's just been in my head ever since then, the first time I heard it, which I think it's fucking great. Like uh, the middle class purgatory living to some kind of, median of something you know for anyone who's ever thought that life is a bit of a con sometimes life is like a new bar plastic seats beer below par food with no taste music grapes i'm living too late as fiery jack is a kind of a celebration of the grit and the grot uh this one is pretty much condemnation i think it's great and i think it's lyrically one of his very best. It's interesting, you know, I was reading the lyrics to this one and and being quite amazed because it was the first time I looked at them uh, in preparation for today. And, you know, it kind of struck me that he can really, like, nail these quite deep emotions like Onuai and other big ones like love, regret, depression. But at the same time, a lot of his songs are kind of about very random things as well. And this is something that I really, really like and respect about the um, the, the lyric writing is that, you know, he could nail it when he wanted to, but he didn't feel obliged to churn out song after song over these deep feelings. 
So, yeah, very, very excellent piece. Indeed, indeed. And, and the question as to whether Smith was living too long by the end is uh, one that we'll come back to. Um, I don't know if you have, have you ever seen that interview you did with Krishna and Guru Murphy on Channel 4? Um, moving on. What about what it's up against, which is brilliant. And then, like I said, you, you fellas don't think it deserves its own moment in the sun. And we will talk about that more. But dog is life of curious orange. You don't see rabbits being walked down the street. And you don't see cats. Dogs, pets, capacious, low-witted dogs. So, yeah, as as we alluded to, Patrick, if we were going to have a poet on, we couldn't have chosen a better track than this. But, of course, it was Smith pulling the strings with the random choices. So now is the time. Tell us of Dog is Life, if you don't mind. Dog is Life contains amazing lines. I was especially drawn to the genitive clauses. So these lines begin with the word of. Right now, I'm working with a, a graduate student on a project on this um, really obscure uh, American poet from the middle of the century who, who heard voices, who would dictate to her. Her name was Merle Hoyleman, and her stuff's really obscure and strange. And she would hear voices and then sort of translate that in, into her own poems. That was her source material. Um and she piles the genitive phrases on so that you can't really follow along. And so I've been thinking about that. So when I come to a line like, of Earth-like lousy dog role model for infidel doghouse continent, you know, like that's one clot. And I'm supposed to be able to move from there to the, you know, that's that's describing something that's come before and you can't keep it all in your head, right? Even a shorter line like, of drift dog pet dog street bullshit. That's like one thing I'm supposed to apply to the noun I just heard, you know, and you almost can't. And and it's beautiful. So what it does is that the pace of the poem sort of picks up, uh, which is good. Uh, It rhymes with 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 the song, which is really driving is lunging forward, especially that the intro on the drums. uh, Amazing. Perfectly produced, I might add. But um it also has some good uh, funny lines, but also jokes like a line like uh, you're a dream of civil, civil liberation for dogs. I love the doubling up of civil with the comma in there, which means that civil modifies civil, uh, which is just so spiteful, you know, and that and leads directly into this uh, actually sort of profound rumination or question about Socratic theory as is funneled through old testament dogma uh and that's where blake comes in right and yeah. i i don't know enough about blake to say more about that but as i said the mez's prosody in here is amazing it's on par with gerard manley hopkins if you can get with get with that um on par with late amiri baraka formerly Leroy jones um if you if we went through and we completely scanned this poem You'd be sat- satisfied enough, but you know, I I, I never read Marky e. Smith. I've intentionally avoided lyrics books and 
all that stuff. Um, the added complications of bullhorn, the plight coughing of the crowd in their seats in 1988, when I bought this record and I was 17, 18 years old or whatever, and I listened to it, I thought every sound I was hearing was meaningful. The applause began for some very specific reason, right when it began, which I suppose is not true, you know, but um, it's just wicked. It's stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. I wish, I wish that Jerusalem were as good as Dog is Life. I'll just say that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That idea of giving Smith the benefit of the doubt, whether intentionalism, whether that, you know, yeah, he probably didn't choose to introduce those sounds at those specific points, but he totally could have as well to kind of punch it or just as a, a total takedown of dog owners from every perspective it is absolutely brilliant as a whether you're listening to him perform it or just reading it yeah it's it's wonderful Ezra as I as I left you out last time I'm going to come to you now first tell us more on Doggy's life yeah I mean it, it, it it's a classic thing of having some incredibly fantastic words and kind of burying them in levels of semi-audibility yeah, you know, to start with the the things about like, oh, you don't see many squirrels on leads, you don't see any cats on leads. All I can say to that is, Marky Smith, come to Tokyo, and you'll be counting the animals that you don't see on leads. <laughs> you know, like, but yeah, uh, rapacious wet dogs, perfect, astute observation. I've never met a wet dog that wasn't rapacious. Um, where have we got here? Black Collar sends East German refugee back switch and crap pathetic of Earth-like lousy dog role model for infidel doghouse continent, mutt citadel, dog eye mirror, hypnotic, school, slaver and learn, lot from dog on grass, an over-nervous delicate dog, detracts light from indiscrepant non-dog lover, dog pet dog, come home to you. Come home, we'll talk shit to you. Dog, the pet owner, blistered, hanging there. Death dog, Plato of the human example. And copier, dog master, pet mourner. Dog is life. Fucking great stuff. So um, the only other thing I have to add uh, is that the word indiscrepant seems not to exist. Uh, I spent a bit of time looking into this and apparently... One person who loves to use the word indiscrepancy, which also doesn't exist, is none other than the son of Donald Trump, who used the word indiscrepancy in an interview on the 15th of July 2016 and then went on to tweet it. So could this be precog in action? I'm not sure, but someone who's definitely as stupid as Marky Smith's idea of a dog owner is Donald Trump. Well, hanging fruit there. What about uh, Alistair? What do you think of uh, this? Follow, follow that. Follow that. More rapacious satire from the fall cast people. I mean, it's, it's, it's done a meet again. <laughs> You're banned. You are banned this from the show. This is going forever. much better than I thought it would. You, you guys sound way more pro on, on the other end of uh, my... Myself, okay. I know. Jesus fucking Christ, Alistair! I gotta mute yourself. It's because it's Eurovision. He's been cheering him on again. It's because I keep muting him because he's 
I mean, Russell in those boxes in between, and now he can't work out how to one mute. What does Tim think while he's working out how to use his iPhone? A nice bit of poetry, but without even bongos, it's just an intro. What is his problem? He's, he doesn't like it, man. There's gonna no. be there's gonna listen, spring two. We're gonna have to cut down the number of people in this room because this is just not working. <laughs> Alistair, have you, have you worked out, out where that where that unmute button is? I cannot unmute you. Oh, there we go. Stop Brilliant. fucking unmuting right. me, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is censorship. Oh, come on, this is know. my podcast. This right. is my podcast that it was right. now wilt. It's the whole of the law, etc. Uh, but uh, yeah, right, it's, 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 it's a big old rant. It's a lot of fun. Wrote, like wrote down laws of stuff about it. But since it got muted, I'm not going to bloody tell you about it anymore. So fuck you. <laughs> I imagine it wasn't that good anyway. But dog licenses had been abolished in 1987. And people in the 1980s, especially the Daily Mail readers, were very worried that the Channel Tunnel would let rabies in. <laughs> Is, have we heard everyone? I've lost the plot at this point. I've uh, lost a lot. It's I've I've written down beat poetry. It's got that kind of uh, that that slam sort of thing about it all, isn't it? But it, um, yeah, it's not for me. I mean, it's it's not bad, but it's not where I come to the fall for personally. Jesus Christ, Phil! I thought you were a modernist. I thought you were into the quantum realm and all that shit. Brendan, I think he was being sensible there. Oh, come on. Go on, Alistair. Tell us what you think. Please, Alistair, give us your opinion on this song. I'm um, begging you. It's not Seller Black, is it? You know, so uh, it's Eurovision next weekend. So compared to Lynn Too Late, come on. Well, here we go. It's it's not quite. On, it's, it's, a it's a different animal. Come on, come on, come on, see reason, come on, be, re be reasonable, please. Anyway, we're taking a vote. And um, Michael on Patreon, he, um, I didn't tell him that it was just Dog is Life, not Dog is Life slash Jerusalem. So he's gone for Dog is Life, which is good. I'll take the votes anyway, I can. And I'm also going for Dog is Life. Patrick, which way are you going on this? I'm going living too late. Oh, I could have counted on you at least for this one. Ezra, come on. Once talking was my favourite while, but now I know a conversation before it's done. I'm living too late. Hell. Uh, I, well, I'm voting Dirge. Uh, I'm trying to bring the Dirge back as All a right. popular form of music. Nice. Alistair, come on, give me something. Nothing. That's well past my bedtime. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely living too late. Is it, right. I don't know what it is now. It's about one a bloody clock in the morning here. I guess I'm usually loud and then I will, I will lie down. We've only got two more songs to go. All right, so whatever. Living Too Late goes through. Disgrace. Blood at a Stone, which was, was on the Dredger EP with the White Lightning. Unfortunately, I'm coming from a bad end. For the bad end But hanging round with you Is like blood out of stone And getting stuff out of use Is like blood 
Right, as I cut you off, what you think of uh, Blood Out of Stone, 1990? Um, it's a cover, isn't it? Sure, yeah, it is. Yeah, so it's not going through. Um, it's a decent tune, a decent era, um, decent lineup, good people doing good things, uh, nice tune, uh, and good choice of a cover. Uh, just out of interest, uh, who did the original, Al? Well, don't ask me. It's, it's, it's one o'clock in the morning. And I'm, I'm adult. I'm, I'm Larry adult. So I, I have no idea. I mean, look at it. He seems to be carrying around some kind of exhaust pipe from a car. Is it fa- is that falling off the bottom of your, uh, I, I, your I've Ford Fiesta? I've been into Wigan and I've had a few half shandies. So, you know, don't, don't ask me who did the original of that. Jumbo Chop House. So this is some blood out of stone. It was a, it was a, it was originally on on the Dredgery P, written by Marky e. Smith and uh, Martin Brammer, obviously. Um, and, uh, it's a great tune. It's a great tune. Um, Phil, what do you make of this original fall composition? Well, I must admit, the first thing I did when I heard this was to look up who actually wrote the song, <laughs> and so imagine, imagine the look on my face. <laughs> When I find out it was Marky Smith and Martin Brammer that written this, it's uh, I, this is the track that I remember before. It's got a real Ennio Morricone feel to it. It feels like a, a soundtrack to a spaghetti western. I, I listen to a lot of, I think, on some of the uh, the other the other shows that we normally do at the end of the season, where we we kind of just uh, you know whatever we want to listen to. Uh, I've played some soundtrack stuff before, and it really reminded me of a lot of that seventies Italian music. I must admit the production really put me off first couple of listens to this, but the more the more that I understood what they were trying to do, that sort of Morricone on a shoestring kind of thing, and then the fact that they were <laughs> introducing some keyboard sounds that were a bit incongruous. They get they kind of rhythmically fit, but they're a bit sort of uh, <laughs> preset-y. Um, I I quite got into this. It's uh, it sort of grew on me really, but uh, yeah, I, it's. I, I like a bit more corny, so I like this. Brilliant. And we've used that word three times this evening, so we now can own that. Um, <laughs> Patrick, what do you make of this incongruous 1960s cover version by The Fall? Well, I agree. It sounds like a cover, but it's not. Uh, building the lyric around the cliche blood from a stone is slightly disappointing. Um, he makes up for it by using this term that apparently... Frank Zappa first used this beautiful word discorporate. I like that. I like the chord progression, but I, I don't like the way it's played. Played with this kind of rote indie strummy fashion. Um, the more time I spent with it, the more I could kind of get into um, the plunky keyboards like Phil, I guess. Right. And, and the, the strange extra percussion, I think is meant to introduce some pocket, some, swing if you will but <clears throat> the song seems to me like a Burt Kempfert tune with oh, all the pocket <laughs> erased from it you know just flattened out all the swing taken out so then they inject these sound effects in this percussion and I don't know it's disappointing for me with the rhythm section of Hanley and Wolves and Croft I would expect there to be more interest there also the mix I I agree um the Hammond keys, which is what I think I'm hearing, the very first thing I'm hearing in the track, um, 
it's really low in the mix and and i think it makes a lot of difference for this tune i wish it were i wish they brought those keys up maybe brought uh mez's vocals down a little bit um so i was kind of disappointed in this track i i, I tried and then i found it was it was kind of an earworm there's no there's no melody there but the chord progression i kept humming just around the house i don't know what to make of that but yeah absolutely so i thought it was that really nice 60s kind of chord progression very poppy i could imagine mccartney doing a, a nice version of this i'm not sure why now those ais are all coming out where paul mccartney sings like uh, smells like teen spirit for the rest of eternity that's uh we can enjoy that maybe at some point uh, it doesn't do anything too special just a sweet nice tune with some plupin synths and a decent straight bat mez performance the sort of gentle indie stuff that you lot hate um it seems like Brammer's last gas before he left, so it's possible that uh, Marsha's playing those keyboards, and that might be one of the last things she does. Uh, annotated Fall have this gem. Yet I thought it was yet another angry early 90s fall song about Trevor Long, but it seems to be just another early 90s fall song about a woman. Um, Brendan, Brendan, it was Alistair. one of those in the festive 50. Yeah, Again. it was. It was decent, right? It's, it's beautiful. Um, Leon says, great undervalued track. Always like the presence of Kenny Brady's violin, which gives emotional resonance in contrast to Dave Bush's industrial fannying. Mez is quite love alone in this period and a good vocal performance in a lower register. Al's got a violin out there. This is why you're on mute. Al, go on, give us a blast. Hey, where's your, have you got a bow? My mum's just got up as well. Come on, mum, she's still here. It's nice. That's that's how you pop Go on, Al. Go on. Have your moment in the sun. What I need to do is I need to like train my bow up. He's a professional. Do it on demand. Ezra, while he's he's moistening his bow, why don't you uh, tell us what you think of uh, Blood Outer Stone? Well, it's, as has been said, it's nice enough. For me, it's kind of like a folly. You know, it's, it's got enough there. That it works its way into you and you you can kind of enjoy it listening to it i was like um found my mind taken back to phil talking on the doors as an influence and to me not being in an enormous an enormous blue uh, doors fan i felt like it sounded kind of like the doors mainly through the keyboard part it it, it sounded like my idea of a doors tune at least going back to what i was saying about living too late you know Lyrically, it's nothing as well. But I do like the line, uh, you're techno-grounded. <laughs> also, opens with a strong one. Unfortunately, I'm coming from a bad end, and I'm destined for a bad end. I hope you heard that big fat sound as well. That was my, my son fulfilling oh, his destiny. So it's all go here, isn't it? Alistair, are you ready? No. Put him on mute. All right, well, it's up against Sing Harpy off Extricate, also a Martin Bremer original, although pretty heavily cribbed from the Stooges.
Yeah, I knew you'd come through in the end. That was from really nice playing you did there at the beginning of that track. It was uh, really fitting quite well. Patrick, as is customary, it's our final song of the evening. What's your take on Sing! Exclamation mark, Harpy. So what Stooges, I have a question for you. What Stooges song are you hearing, 1969? It, it didn't ask that. Little Doll. Yeah, it's Little oh, Doll. Little Doll. Yeah. Okay, Little Doll. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, the song and <clears throat> much of this album feels very Chicago to me. Lived a lot of my life in Chicago and a lot of my life in Minneapolis, and this sounds like Chicago to me. I love that chord on the one, the first chord you hear in the song, and the on the one in the choruses. It sounds it's like one of those fucked up sort of hard days night chords, but like prepared like a John Cage piano, like something's wrong with the chord. It's beautiful. Um, the what I like about the lyrics is the lyric the lyrics tell a story. And he he wasn't doing a lot of storytelling by this period in the way he had sort of earlier on. Um, but it is a story. It seems like it's a character sketch. So he sets the scene, and then and then there's a narrative. Something transpires, and he doesn't tell you what it is. And he wakes up the next morning. So then he sets two scenes and whatever transpires between those two scenes, you have to deduce or guess, which is still storytelling. And, it, and it's, I think, a brilliant form of storytelling. It allows him to sort of slag off bricks without without having to cop to having done so. Right. Which he never really did. But it's a, it's a song about bricks, as I understand it. I love the couplet where he says her father was much worse, but can't put why in this line. So that's a testament either to the unspeakable evil of the patriarch, or it's a reference to the limited number of syllables he has to work with as he's writing the lyric. Very few lyricists can refer to the lyrics they are writing and still be talking about something, you know, but Marky Smith can. And the figure of the harpy, um, there's a harpy, scrawl this has nothing to do with anything except i always think of it there's a there's a harpy scrawled on the wall of joan of arc's prison cell in the carl dreyer film so maybe if the song is an indictment of bricks he's at least acknowledging her legendary prowess right because the harpy is not just evil but you know powerful i named my only daughter after bricks so I'm a little bit biased here, wow. but th- this song is sort of uh, legendary in my life also. Yeah, well, that's that's super cool. Um, and yeah, can't say enough good things about Briggs's uh, involvement in the fall. This was obviously after she just left Smith. And so, yeah, as you, as you said, he um, this was almost certainly uh, uh, a rant against Briggs. But yeah, he'd never cop to it. He'd never admit it. It was always very pleasant <laughs> and saying generally nice things about her. The the harpy thing. That John DeVarty thing is 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 cool. One of my uh, favorite bands, Chicago band, John DeVarty, did a soundtrack to uh, the John DeVarty uh, movie a few years back. Philip, what do you make of this cover, Little Doll by the Stooges? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> it's absolutely right. I, I mean, right from the start, there's this. It, it feels like what it is. It's it's a mythological kind of uh, uh, sound. The screeching of the the harpy starting it all off. 
Uh, and then, uh, like Patrick was saying, this narrative that's put together in very deft little brush strokes, but you get so much. It's it's that thing about what's in the gutter rather than what's in the panel, isn't it, with like comic writing? Um, and there's a lot in the gutter here. And it's it's like it is it is very Lovecraftian in the way that he approaches this. I think the music is is absolutely perfect as well. It's they don't go fuck on really for me here. Everything from that sort of wonky drum sounds that they get going. Uh the again, it's another two two chord, two note riff. Um and the line, her talons were quite famished. I mean, it's just such it's just so alive, the words all the way through this, isn't it? Um so yeah, but I I, I love that where he's I mean, he's, he's telling an everyday story, but yet again, he's sort of dipping into the mythological to tell it. It's And I, I was reading something this week about living in the mythological, you know, it's like, how important do you see your life kind of thing? And it's uh, I, I, I love it when he dips into that style of writing. Because, yeah, it's a great tune. Yeah, these birds had the faces of virgin girls, foulest excrement flowing from their bellies, clawed hands and faces always thin with hunger. So, um he was a well-read chap, and he didn't mind, uh, yes, dipping into the mythological with his pint of mild. But Alistair, what mm. of you? What of you in those spheres? Well, to, to, to bottle this LP, you can't look like a race, and uh, I did like extra, uh, and uh, sing happy, a lot of fun. Brick's stuff is quite obvious in there. Brick's can't like references it in her book which we've been reading uh, recently she kind of like brushes it under the carpet goes, ah, I'm, 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 I'm. but I, I don't know I, I think there's a lot of stuff in there that's uh, about her um, and yeah the, the, the harpy the uh, reference to the you know, I don't know if it's Greek you know, it's, it's uh, the mytholog- mythological creature uh, the harpy, um, and 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 singing, but you can't get away from little doll stooges. Uh, that's just the, the excrement of that one is made all of that song. Uh, however, it's a nice thing. So um, yeah, I like this one. Um, there is. It's a lumbering groove, but I, I have a bit of uh, bit of trouble with the harpy metaphor. The uh, it's uh, it's not very nice, is it, Mark? It might no, be beautiful. It's not pleasant. No, no, definitely no, not. No. Definitely not a pleasant one. It's, it's like, but MES, he wasn't a very nice person, was he? Really? Well, this is the you trouble, know? isn't it? Right? If we're going to get into some of the. Uh, so, so we've had we've had chats before about obviously stuff like the classical and stuff like uh, Mazarowski's daughter. I believe we we, we uh, had a chat about uh, the uh, less appealing side of Smith. And I think the more I read this, just I I did not like where he was coming from at all. <laughs> well, yeah, again, again, like uh, like Bricks went back and, and joined the band again after that, knowing. You know, like years afterwards, knowing what he'd said, she did it. Well, the thing she... is that we're we're rereading Brooks's book, right? We're going to talk about it in a little bit, and she rejoined with some very clear stipulations as to her uh, how she operated in that second time, and that was smart of her. It's like you know, once you're out of the sure, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So that I'm gonna like live in LA, and I'm gonna be shipped over to London or wherever to do this stuff. And then you know, it, it was it was very contractual. It was a professional relationship the second time round, but it still worked. Like user syndrome is absolutely brilliant. But yeah, it was a different. Let's turn the studio. Brandon, what do you think of this idea of the of the harpy? The harpy also is the personification of storm winds. So the harpy is a powerful figure, right? Yeah. So the, the harpy plays into this this idea of like the evil woman, the woman who will sort of undo you. You know, you're hungover after this relationship or this encounter or something like that. But she's also fucking indomitable. You know. It's interesting that he chose, you know, the harpy or, or the siren or something like that, which is a powerful woman figure. So mm. I, I, I will concede to that. And he, he I think he would have known that this isn't uh, just a character assassination. He's kind of giving his opponent uh, their dues. But I, I, it just leaves a bitter taste for me the way that he, he doesn't play up that side of it particularly. There's not a lot of hints in there that he's actually saying this is a formidable opponent and kudos to you and respect. It's more like maybe cheaper shots than that. What What, what is your take, Patrick? Uh, I'd like to entertain the opposite that that he uh, he can he concedes as much as he defies or something. But no. uh, um, uh, who's to say i think for me it's important that it opens the album and that uh there's an exclamation point after sing also right like yeah. so what what is what is it's not so much a, a statement as to what this album is about it's more like um uh keep doing what you're doing just don't do it to me <laughs> Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah, I mean, lines like she took a lousy Wednesday and turned it into a cold spring. She got taller by the minute, but then she could sell you anything. So, yeah, I think that's buried within it of, like, there is... Uh, Brendan, Brendan, uh, I'm okay just uh, asking uh, Patrick a question about oh, sort of, uh, uh, the US uh, media and uh, sort of, like, independent media uh, in the 1990s. Uh, I, I was a big fan of, like, Maximum Rock and Roll, the Baffler, uh, and, and answer me. Um, if do you've got any recollections of those? Do, do, do those like publications have any kind of like um, resonance for you? Maximum rock and roll certainly. Um, you you know that was like your mail order catalog, right? And and a guide to the catalog all in one. Um, but I associate that with the with the eighties. A funny thing happened to me in the 90s after, um, to some extent during, but certainly after grunge. So for me in the American Midwest, that would have been about 94, 95. I just completely <clears throat> got out of music, uh, which was, I was involved with sometimes directly, sometimes tangentially. But that was really my my world. And I just decided to do something else. And I listened to no about no fall records about no rock records the like none of that for a few years and it was about 1998 1999 that i just you know five years later let's say that i decided to sort of catch up i think baffler was um correct me if i'm wrong l but the baffler was sort of coming up in that period where i was intentionally not paying attention so i can't <laughs> really say that 
Maximum rock and roll, though, in the 80s, in the mid 80s, was important. You know, like I've been thinking a lot about this week about how I first encountered the fall. If you were a kid like me, high school kid going, you know, downtown to the cool record stores to buy British imports, you know, you knew what to buy when you were buying American records because they were covered in in maximum rock and roll and zines like that. Like you had a lot of access to that stuff and a way to navigate it. But when I bought my first fall record, I associated them with Beggar's Banquet. And I'm like, they don't look like a goth band. And <laughs> as I understand it, Beggar's Banquet is a goth label and they must be really important and special because of their name. You can't have a name like The Fall. They, they, there must be a lot to learn here to know. And uh, it was that photograph where they're in front of the creek or the river, you know, and Mark's got a can of lager that he's sort of hiding behind his knee. It's, and I, I looked at every one of them and I'm like, except for that one guy who looks like he's sneezing, I want to be half as cool as any of these people, you know? I didn't know anything else about them, and I bought the record based on the cover and the fact that it was associated with Beggar's Banquet. And 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 the only other goth records, everything from England appeared to be goth. It was like The Mission, <laughs> Sisters of Mercy. Wank. Yeah, Bauhaus, which I, you know... They were okay. You know, whatever. It's fine. Um, I didn't trust Bauhaus. Mm-hmm. I didn't trust any of that shit. And so I took the fall record home just just to see, you know. And then that's all I was buying for next after I heard it. But that's, anyways, maximum rock and roll in the 80s was important. Oh, I, man, Emma fucking loved it. And uh, even in the, the early 90s, like when you had the, the, the sort of like garage punk thing going on, they covered it. That was really good. Like the, the early 90s. So like a uh, garbage punk revival. Uh, so you had like bands like Mummies, Phantom Surfers, Trash Women, um, Teen Generator. You get into like Japanese punk stuff. Like you know, they, 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 they always kept up the punk stuff. And you had the people who were writing the columns who wrote some great stuff. And some of it was just like complete misinformation. But it was it was entertaining. And it, it was all in the days before the internet. Yeah. That, that's what was great about Emma. It was it was it was something that was going on. It was the supply of information before the internet. True. Very good. So uh, were, this is a fall podcast. It's about mm-hmm. the rock and roll band of But actually, um Patrick, what you described there was very similar to what we heard. We had Jeffrey Lewis we had on about a while back, who's a big fall fan, and uh, he had described a similar experience, I guess, as the uh, USA Fall fan who encounters this mysterious band and then falls into that uh, that world. Uh, unlike our experience, which I guess Smith, by the time we were growing up, uh, was already well established within the culture you know the enemy and all that kind of stuff so it is an interesting uh, and uh perspective so um Ezra you were kind of rocking backwards and forth do you have a babe in your arms there is is the youngster still sleeping a little, little flesh cloud full of gas beautiful but what do you think um, of this song whatever it is Kind of like you, Brendan. I mean, yeah, I absolutely concede the power of the harpy, but uh, 
yeah, you know, like I often feel like extricate is kind of an excuse to just string together a bunch of bricks diss tracks. It, it, it is a fantastic album, and I like this song a lot. And when I was listening to it and trying to decide between um, Blood Out of Stone and this, I was like, well, I'll go for the one that's got the more authentic fall sound, which, of course, would be the one that was copied from the Stooges. Um, I think, for my money, the best bricks this track the fall ever did of course is bonkers in phoenix um <laughs> which is i mean you know if you really want to tell someone how little you think of them just just take their song and shit all over it <laughs> um, Rick does talk about how she was really pissed off about how bonkers in phoenix was a beautiful mm. song that she wrote, and then yeah, it, it was just like stuffed up his ass and uh, shot out of you. Really, yeah, it Absolutely. was an awful, awful. But man. yeah, for me, um, yeah, it's the violin that really wins it here. Uh, very nice track. Penny Brady, brilliant. Just don't let him sing. But um, in terms of uh, rocking and rolling, brilliant. That Leon says. Um, this should have made shift work, uh, maybe in exchange for Book of Lies, which is the one that Kenny Brady does sing on, which would have been a better B-side. Sing Harpy, nice. So he was talking about Blood at Stone first, but Sing Harpy, nice, but works best as extricate opener rather than standalone track, uh, which I do agree with. Tim, what does Tim think? He'll like this one, I think. He's put a nice, ditty, but weighty, anodyne and polite. Almost sounds like it's falling asleep as it goes along. Drums sound fucking awful in that shit big way of the late 80s and 90s. The only thing that stands out is the weird wobbly noise in the back. Violin played Sul Ponticello. Not for me. Dull as dishwater. Yeah, well, maybe. I do think that... I put that the, the, there's a very little guitar and the perfunctory kind of drums. It's that lumbering riff that, that makes it. But I do think production-wise, there could have been uh, it could it could have been done a little bit heavier, a little bit stronger. But still, it's a beautiful track. Shall we have a, a vote? It's uh, Blood Out of Stone versus Sing Harpy. Patrick, which way are you going? Sing Harpy. Okie dokie. And uh, Philip? Yeah, Sing Harpy. All right, Ezra. Yeah, sing happy. Um, Michael E has gone for Blood Out of Stone. I'm I'm torn between the two. Harpy has uh, drawn me this week, and that discussion about the 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 lyrics particularly has kind of like pushed me over the edge towards Harpy. So I am going for it, even though Blood is one of my favorite tracks out there. Alistair, uh, how does night? Fair enough. Sorry, sing happy. Good. Well, Harpy goes through. Uh, but what does that mean? That means that Fiery Jack, uh, Living Too Late, and Sing Harpy have gone through to the second round, I believe. We are closing in on the end of round one. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you all. Lovely to meet you. It's good yeah. to you, Patrick. It's been great. And, um, been a Likewise, really appreciated what you brought there. The, the door is open for you to return in the round two or three, should uh, you desire. But take care, everyone. Have a good evening, morning, etc. Live long and prosper.